0: Father, we love you and thank you that you loved us so much. Not only did you give us the life of your Son, but you gave us your brain on paper. That is the Holy Scriptures, that it might lead and guide us to you and to become like you through the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. So we ask now for your grace in preaching and teaching, as well as in listening and then doing the Word of God to our hearts this morning, for Christ's sake, amen. Today you're gonna hear the fifth message in a series titled, Gracious Justice. Gracious Justice. Let's remember, first of all, what we mean when we say justice. There are basically three categories of justice. There is, first of all, legal or procedural justice, the kind of justice that seeks to make and practice laws that are fair, equitable, and right, both for individuals and for the community without partiality or prejudice. That's procedural justice. Then there's distributive justice. It seeks the fair distribution of scarce resources. Thirdly, there is social justice, which seeks to uphold the unalienable rights of every individual, regardless of race, ethnicity, social class, or gender. Now, I added the word gracious in front of the word justice as a reminder to all of us that the justice we seek on behalf of others ought to flow out of the grace of God that is operating in our lives. Through the Old Testament prophet Micah, God commanded his people to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. Now the reason the issue of justice or the issues of justice are so crucial for us uh, to understand and to uphold is because our God is the God of justice and righteousness. To do justice means to love your neighbor as we love ourselves. Justice is rooted in the character and the nature of our God. And since we are image bearers of God, we too have the mandate and the capacity to do justice. But justice is also important for another, more practical or pragmatic reason. Justice provides some predictability for things that are beyond our control so that we can plan our lives and live with some peace of mind. Put another way, justice is important because it makes life possible in our complex, civilized society. For example, if you ever wonder why certain neighborhoods and certain countries are so poor with so little infrastructure or development, it's because no business leaders want to invest in those neighborhoods. And it's simple math. They look at the crime stats in the neighborhood or the country and they realize that since there is so much crime and the authorities can't seem to contain the crime elements, they know it's not good to place or to make investments of infrastructure and economic developments in those neighborhoods or those countries because they're going to lose their investments. So business people are smart, they want a return on their investment and they don't make their investments lightly without consideration about issues of justice in neighborhoods and countries where there is a marketplace for their investment. So where there is little justice, there is little economic development because business need a certain sense of predictability and stability to thrive. And families need the same sense of predictability and stability to thrive, which is the reason why many families in Poor economic communities and communities riddled with crime, those families are not thriving because there's no justice there or very little justice there. So now let's turn to our first scripture passage for today. We've been looking at Old Testament passages of scripture regarding justice and then we looked at what Jesus had to say about justice in the Gospels. Today we're going to look at the apostles' teaching in the book of Acts and other epistles. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 38. Acts two thirty-eight. the Bible says this. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, verse 39, and your children and all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now let me quickly give you the context for this text and how it explains the acts of gracious justice we will see unfold in other passages here in the Gospel, in the book of Luke, or the book of Acts, written by the apostle Luke. Shortly after the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, his disciples obeyed his instruction to go to the upper room and prayerfully wait on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And after receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the apostle Peter boldly preached the gospel and 3,000 people were saved, baptized, and added to the local church, the first century church there in Jerusalem. Now I want you to note carefully the promise that Peter gave in verses 38 and 39. Peter said that if you repent of your sins and be baptized in our Lord Jesus Christ, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then look at verse 39. Peter said, this promise is for all y'all including your children. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not limited to be received only by adults, but children can receive the Holy Spirit as well. I love that. And then he said, the promise even extends to those who are far off. That's probably a reference to the hated Gentiles. Now, why is this so important? Because it's necessary, it's a necessary prelude or prelude, to every good and wonderful thing that flows from the church. In other words, without having received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we will not and we cannot love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We will not and we cannot pursue justice according to God's standard without the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us. So let's see how these brand new believers in this new church plant in Jerusalem began to pursue gracious justice. Look in verse 42 of Acts 2. The scripture says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I love the volunteer spirit that seems to be evident and communicated in verse 42. The New Jerusalem saints devoted themselves. There's no indication that they were compelled by any outside coercion. They were not shamed or guilted into this new devotion to each other. In fact, the word devotion speaks to an internal drive, most likely rooted in the grace of the Holy Spirit at work in their hearts. The Holy Spirit that they had just received after the preaching of the gospel. The early church devoted themselves to four activities. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, eating, they must have been Baptists, and prayer, right? Teaching, fellowship, eating in each other's homes, and prayer. So the question for us is, what things, what activities, what people are you devoted to? Is it the four animals in our city? The bears, the bulls, the wolves, the... The Cubs, I'm meddling, I'm meddling, let me, I'm, I'm meddling, let me get back to preaching. What is it that you are devoted to? What things, what activities, what people are you devoted to? See, your devotions are related to your affections, the things and the people that you like and love. Verses 44 to 45 says that they had everything in common. They sold their possessions and goods to financially support anyone in their community who had needs. That's incredible. Now, UBC has what we call a benevolent fund. It is a fund created by special designated offerings of UBC members like you. It is managed by a small group of deacons. And the purpose of this fund is to help members of UBC in our community who have special temporary financial needs over the years we have helped our members pay their mortgage pay their rent pay a, a gas bill or a light bill or a phone bill or a grocery bill or a transportation bill it is our attempt of imitating the examples we find in passages like this as well as obeying the teachings of justice also found in the scriptures, And I'm convinced that if we spend more time together in fellowship and sharing meals in each other's homes with glad and sincere hearts, we would learn more about each other's needs and we'll be willing to voluntarily, cheerfully meet those needs of each other. What Luke writes... A few chapters later in this book of Acts is incredible because it goes on to even give more color, more detail about what we read in Acts chapter 2. So scroll down to Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 34. This statement is going to blow you away. We saw that in the Old Testament and basically Luke is quoting the Old Testament prophet. He says, there were no needy persons among them. That is, in that growing church of three or four thousand people. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So once again, we we get the sense that this was a spontaneous and voluntary overflow of God's love one to another. This sign of generous, gracious justice was spontaneous, voluntary, an overflow of what God was doing in individuals' hearts, from those who had more than they needed to those who didn't have enough for themselves. Please know that this is not communism, and this is not socialism. This is Christian social justice in the context of the local church family. You see, when the Spirit of God is at work in the hearts and minds of believers, you don't need the government to mandate new taxes to give to the poor. You don't need the government to confiscate private property from private citizens to redistribute to the poor. That's communism and socialism. But when the church fails to do what God expects us to do, then the government feels compelled to step in and help. I find it very interesting that Luke basically quotes Deuteronomy 15:4. He says, "Do you remember what Deuteronomy 15:4 says? We studied it a few weeks ago. It says, "There should be no poor among you speaking of God's people." Think about it. What credit? Is it to God for his people to be in poverty? We claim to worship the God who owns the cattle in a thousand hills, the God who created the universe, the God who can do miracles, and then he's got poor people who can't fend for themselves that are named among his church. What does it say about a family for some to be rich and others in the same family to be poor? Those on the outside looking in on that family would conclude that they must not love one another. Otherwise, they would take care of those who are weak, those who are poor in their midst, so that they'd be poor no more. Of course, we know that every family has some member who is lazy and won't work. Amen? We have some members of the family like that. We all do. Or maybe they are irresponsible and they blow all their money at the casino or on drugs and alcohol. We have some members of the family like that, don't we? But every family has members who simply fall in hard times and could use a little help and encouragement. There are things that happen to all of us that are outside of our control. And when life happens, it's good to know that you have a church family that can help you even if your biological family can't or won't. The scripture indicates that everyone deserves help when needed. We should help if they allow us to help when needed. And help that is truly helpful. We must certainly be wise stewards of God's resources, and we must be careful not to help people in ways that enable them to continue down their path of self-destruction. Talking about those who have addictions, for example, addictions to gambling or alcohol or drugs. We don't want to become enablers, so we have to have wisdom as to how to help those who have those conditions. Let's move on to the divine words from another apostle who wrote about justice. 1 John chapter 3, 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brother's If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. If you want to know how whether someone loves you, all you have to do is watch what they do for you, not what they say to you. Ladies, don't fall for all that fluffy talk you who are single and want to be married don't listen only to the sweet words that comes out of his mouth watch for what he does why because talk is so cheap it's so cheap it's po with one o talk is cheap It's pull with one O. On the other hand, if you are willing to give your life for your Christian brother or sister, then surely you will also gladly share your wealth and possessions. Did you notice the crucial giving sequence starting in the second half of verse 16 into 17? First, your life. Then, everything else. Do you get it? It's the simple... And same principle that Paul revealed to the church in Rome Romans 8 31 and 32 he says what then shall we say in response to this if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see if God was willing and indeed did give up his one and only precious son, Jesus the Christ, if God made that ultimate sacrifice for you and me on the cross, won't he make any and all other sacrifices? Won't he do it? You see, compared to the ultimate sacrifice, all other gifts seem trivial. One of the things I love, one of the type of shows or movies I love are war movies. Because warriors exemplify these traits of bravery and self-sacrifice and love for their country, for for which they're fighting, and for their fellow comrades. They see themselves as a unit or a battalion or a squadron. But most of all, you hear those who are veterans, they talk about themselves as family because they make incredible sacrifices for each other. And they have been through so much, especially those who have gone into the theater of war. Well, if God did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And did you notice? Our, one of our key words at the end of verse 32, gracious. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Every good and perfect gift that comes from God our Heavenly Father is a gift of grace. Nothing we get from him is earned or deserved. It's all grace. That's why we, keep, we can't stop singing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It doesn't say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a saint like me. We don't sing it like that because we know ourselves too well. We know that we are not saints and we did not deserve that. The one true saint, the innocent, blessed son of the Lord Lord God sent his son to die for us who were sinners, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so what is our problem? Why we are not more just in how we treat one another and how we relate to issues of justice or injustice in our world. What is our problem? We lack one of three resources as I see it. Either we lack the blessed Holy Spirit and have never been truly saved, or we lack the understanding of this teaching. Or we lack the obedience, the will, the obedience to apply his love and grace to others. One of the things I love about God is that he never requires anything of us that he hasn't already exemplified for us in Christ and supplied to us by the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The thing I love about God is that he never requires anything of us that he hasn't already exemplified for us in Christ and supplied to us by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, we have no excuse, in other words. We have no excuse not to be just with one another and not to exercise justice in our communities where injustice is seen. Let's hurry on to two final passages where we will see the practical application of gracious justice. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. So brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And so the word of God spread, the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now in this passage, immediately from the very beginning, verse 1, we find a race problem in the verse. A race problem. Do you see it? The Grecian Jews versus the Hebraic Jews. Now, you thought that only America had a race problem, right? Wrong. The problem of race is nothing new, and it is not unique to America. The widows from Greece were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Remember what we learned about widows? If they had no immediate family to take care of them after their... their Uh, husbands died or they had no sons to care for them they were going to be destitute and so it was incumbent upon the new community of believers to look out for those who had fallen on hard times in this condition and widows were were precariously at, at risk of becoming poor and destitute and so Widows and orphans, you'll often see those two uh, groups of people in the same sentence with an attention for care to be given to them. Now, we don't know for sure whether this was on purpose or simple oversight, but Luke points out the reality of race or ethnicity as an issue, which is why he says it was the Grecian Jews who complained about the, against the Hebraic Jews Because their widows were not being taken care of like the Hebraic widows were being taken care of. But the leaders didn't respond by pointing fingers and grumbling and complaining. They focused on solving the problem by appointing the first deacons to ensure an equitable distribution of food to all the widows. Regardless of whether they were Grecian or Hebraic or any other ethnic minority or group among them. That is what we call distributive justice. There were scarce resources, and the church made sure that the scarce resources, especially among the poor, were being daily distributed to them that they might meet their daily needs. And notice the men that they appointed who became the first deacons ever in the history of the church, their names, many of them were what? Greek. Because they knew that the Greek men would make sure that the Greek widows would be taken care of. So that was one way to solve the problem, you know? It's like the issue we have here in America oftentimes between blacks and whites. Part of the problem is, you know, a lot of times the white folks are in charge, and therefore the needs aren't getting taken care of of those who don't look like them. So in order to adjust that, sometimes people are say, well, let's make sure that some black people or Hispanic people are on the, the, the leadership to distribute the needs in the community because they'll make sure that their own people are taken care of as well and so there's a mix of people greeks and jews that were together on the the list of deacons who are responsible for distributing the needs and that would make sure that the problem of leaving one group out or another would be solved and then finally let's rush to first timothy 5 3 through 16. by the time Paul writes to Timothy, this issue of caring for the needs among them, you can tell had been abused by some of the widows receiving the help. So Paul is writing now in Timothy to make some adjustments to make sure that people in the church are not taking advantage of the benevolent fund for the, for the widows and the orphans. So here's what Paul writes. And you're going to be a bit shocked when you read this because you're going to think, Man, he's, he's sharp here. He's, he's got his knives out and he's poking some folk. And he is because he's trying to correct an abuse that he has heard about or witnessed in the church where Timothy is a pastor. He says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. That's a key to underline in that passage. Widows who are really in need because apparently there were some widows who were not really in need, but they're also going to the feeding trough, trying to get more than they really needed and depriving others who were really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should first of all learn to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. And so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. Again, a key instruction, listen. You as a family member blood relative of a member of your family that is in need, in this case a widow, the primary persons responsible for caring for the widow is the family members. The other grown children, children who are working, ought to be taking care of that family member who is a widow and in need. Don't make that become the burden of the church. So first the family must be involved here. So that the family can't just say, well, hey, just give them to the church. The church will take care of it. They got all the money anyway. We give our money to the church, the church will take care of it. No. It says first the family ought to learn to put your religion into practice by caring for your own family. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons I love Rebecca's book, it points out, and this is actually something that is true for many in the Asian cultures, Middle Eastern culture, some in the Caribbean culture and South American culture as well. There's no such thing as old people's homes in many of those cultures. You don't take your aged parent or grandparent and put them in some senior living care facility and hardly ever go see them. They come and live with you, and you take the responsibility to care for them until they die. And so some of the immigrant cultures have taught Americans this very lesson that Paul is teaching in Timothy. You who are children and grandchildren should first of all learn to put your religion into practice and care for your own family, and so doing you repay your parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts their hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure, she's dead even while she she lives. Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Can you believe Paul saying this? I would love to be there on a fly on the wall looking at the congregation as Timothy is reading this letter for the first time to the congregation. Paul's letter to to the church. I mean, Paul is not pulling any punches. He says, the folks who are not taking care of their own family, they have denied the faith, and they're worse than unbelievers. Talk about, don't judge me. He's judging you. That's a judgment that Paul is pronouncing right there. Then he says, no widow may be put on the list. It gets better, y'all, or worse, depending on where you sit. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60 and has been faithful to her husband. And she is well known for good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. We're talking about Mother Teresa. (laughs) If you're not Mother Teresa, don't come to the church looking for help. That's what he's saying. Don't come with your hand out looking for help from the benevolent fund if you have not been a faithful servant of the Lord before your need came up, I'm not making it up. It's right there. Y'all can see it for yourself in the text. So don't look at me and get with those daggers in your eyes. Take it up with Paul when you see him in heaven. As for the younger widows, don't put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle, going about house to house. Now, they become idlers, but gossips, busybodies. He's talking about women, y'all. <laughs> now, see, if this, was go- if this was written today and the news media heard about this, There'd be pictures of Paul in the evening news, misogynist, sexist. How dare he talk to women like that? Don't take it up with me. See, Paul, when you get up there, it's right there in the text. I mean, he is just, boom, he's going after it. Because it's a serious thing to miss, to abuse the charity, the Christian charity and the sacrifices of God's people that are given to help those who are really in need so there's no generational welfare queen that comes to the church for handouts if you're not working and really in need and have folk that can help take care of you hello? y'all got quiet And Paul calls out some of the women who become gossips, busybodies, saying all kinds of things they ought not to say, verse 13. And then verse 14, he says, so I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, to give enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Man, a lie! I would not want to be Paul after writing this and sending it to the church. I mean, if email was in back in his day, his email box would be full. The time they read this letter to the congregation. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are, there it is again, really in need. So that means there must be a sense of discerning judgment for those who are the deacons, for example who are administrating this benevolent fund to discern whether the person asking for help is really in need. And they've exhausted all other resources to help themselves so that the the money that is collected for those who are poor and destitute are really poor and destitute. And, and, And there's not just this welfare mentality, just gimme, give gimme, give gimme. Give Let me see what I can, how I can game the system and get what I, what I think is mine. None of that attitude. And Paul calls it out. So yes, we must, we must love, we must give generously, we must be sacrificial, we must seek to help the poor and those who are in need. No question about that. For four weeks now, we've been helping us understand that. But now here there's another correction. Don't try to game the system. Don't pretend to be so needy when you're really not. Amen. Don't come with your hand out when you know good and well you could be working. You could have an income. Or you got a four or five other streams of income, but you're greedy, and so you're coming to take, which really belongs to those who are really in need. So, so, so there's this balance. All throughout Scripture we see a balance. It's not this or that. It is this and that. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And may God help us to live balanced, godly, biblical lives as we pursue justice. Because the God of all the earth, he himself is just, perfectly just. And he sees our hearts. Elder David Anuha tells us all the time, God sees beyond our faces. He knows what is in our hearts. And even if you might deceive me or the elders or the deacons, you can't fool God. And you're going to have to answer to him. We will all answer to the Lord. So seek to do what is right, what is good, what is just, what is fair. Do it as unto the Lord, and God will bless us and provide for every need let us pr- let us stand as we pray